it's terrible. It's really, really terrible. The atmosphere is CO2, so you can't breathe that atmosphere. The temperatures can range. Near the equator during the summer, the temperatures can get as high as 70 degrees. The coldest areas of Mars, like up by the poles, there can get to almost 200 degrees below zero. Unprotected on Mars, you would die in seconds. We have started our constant velocity. Skycam maneuver has started. On February 18th, Perseverance landed on Mars. Touchdown confirmed. Perseverance safely on the surface of Mars, ready to begin seeking the sands of past life. It's the latest rover to investigate the red planet, and its mission is to look for signs of past life so that maybe one day we can pack our bags and move there. And if we do, we're going to have to build there. How hard can that be? From this old house, this is Clear Story, your home in a new light. I'm Kevin O'Connor. The planet Mars has captivated our imagination since the ancient Egyptians and Chinese started studying it over 3,000 years ago. We've written books and movies about it. And some listeners were terrified by George Orwell's famous radio play, War of the Worlds. Professor Morris of Macmillan University reports observing a total of three explosions on the planet Mars between the hours of 7.45 p.m. and 9.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. It didn't take us long to wonder what it would be like to live there. I would love to see Mars. It has some of the best tourist attractions in our solar system. Michelle Thaller is an astrophysicist, and her job at NASA is basically to explain interesting space stuff to people like us. It has the biggest volcano, which is nearly 60,000 feet high, Olympus Mons. It has a, a canyon, Mariner Valley, that would stretch from New York to Los Angeles. You know, think about the whole continental U.S. being the Grand Canyon. So it's a fascinating place. It is a fascinating place, and for good reason. Of all of the planets, Mars was the most like Earth. At one point, it had rivers and lakes, seasons and weather, clouds and wind. We have evidence that life began on Earth like you know, three and a half to four billion years ago. And at that time, Mars might have been very friendly to life. And so the question is, if life started here, why not on Mars? But over billions of years, Mars died. Today, it's cold and dusty. Its thin atmosphere means there's no oxygen to breathe, and the radiation from the sun and cosmic rays is deadly. Oh, and it's really far away. At closest approach to us, it's about 34 million miles away. And at farthest approach, it's about 250 million miles away. Oh, good heavens. So that's one of the big challenges. You can't launch to Mars anytime you want. And once you're on Mars, you can't launch back to Earth anytime you want. You have to wait until things line up properly. And in space, you can never just go in a straight line. You have to get yourself into the right orbit to transition from one planet to another. So if humans go to Mars, they have to be ready for a, a longer journey than they would just going to the moon. To put it in perspective, the moon is about 240,000 miles away, and it takes about three days to get there. Mars, on the other hand, well, that's an epic journey. Best case scenario, if the Earth and Mars are lined up correctly, it'll take six to nine months to get there. 
and add another few months for the planets to line up again, plus the return trip. And all told, well, it's a two-year adventure. Now, there's a slew of challenges to just getting there and surviving that long trip, but let's say we did. Mars is really terrible for us, remember? And it's not just the obvious stuff that'll kill you. How would you deal with any kind of medical emergency? How would you deal with the psychology of those people being isolated and together for that long? Do you want to bring all your food for that, you know, basically two-year mission? Or do you want to find a way to actually grow or create some of it as, as you go to Mars on the way and then when you're on Mars itself? This is one of the things that has been a little bit of a, a dash of cold water on the idea of, you know, shouldn't humans go to these places quickly? And, you know, why haven't we been to Mars yet? You know, or even why haven't we been back to the moon? You know, we're, we're very delicate things. You know, we're, we're very delicate little bags of water and organic molecules. And we just don't stand up to these conditions very well. It's difficult and expensive and at this point dangerous to send people. We're going to Mars. There's absolutely no question. Stephen Petranik is the author of How We'll Live on Mars. And if Michelle Thaller is a skeptic about sending astronauts to Mars, Stephen is already planning the first neighborhood. Well, I originally predicted that the first humans would probably land around 2028, possibly even as early as 2026. And I think those estimates are probably still pretty good. Wait, that's five years away. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Stephen is a big believer in SpaceX and Elon Musk's quest to get people to Mars aboard a rocket called the Starship. And it's a rocket that will easily carry as many as 80 people to Mars at once. Four, three, two, one. Lift I'm very confident they will be able to launch one of their Mars starships in 2024 full of cargo. That cargo will be equipment that will allow the first humans to actually establish a base on Mars and stay there because all the trips are one way. Nobody's coming back. All right, all right wait, wait. I, I gotta, we got to explore that right there. It's a one-way trip. So It's a one-way it, trip. If we go in the next five years, let's just play that one out. People are going to go, and they're going to have to live on Mars for the remainder of their life. Yes. Which would be easy if their lives were really short. <laughs> but we don't, want, we don't want to create that situation, obviously. Mars is pretty much a one-way trip, no matter how many people are on Mars, because there's a, there's a little problem with the rocketry. It's kind of complicated. It is complicated, but very basically... We don't have a booster to get us off the red planet and back home. At least not yet. The very first people who go to Mars will be setting up very primitive uh, kind of living situations that are based on what they can find on Mars, such as caves, to protect them from radiation. So, so bring your own tent and manage on Mars. That's pretty much right. And who's going to go? Like, who goes on a one-way trip to Mars? That's a really good question. Um, Are you going to go? I would go in a flash. Meaning you'd go quickly as opposed to in a flash. <laughs> Meaning I would go <laughs> as soon as possible. Because <laughs> we hope it's not in a flash. But anyway. It's not in a, no. As Musk famously says, I want to die on Mars, just not on impact. 
Now, Stephen's optimism is impressive, and I've heard a lot of people argue that as humans, we're natural explorers. It's in our blood to see what's over the next horizon. But moving to Mars? Humans have been nomadic for 99% of their existence. Something that looks like a human and acts like a human has been on the face of the Earth for 2 million years. And it was only 20,000 years ago that we started forming towns and villages and domesticated animals and planted crops. So that's a survival mechanism. And going to Mars is a survival mechanism because Earth isn't going to last forever. And there are a lot of threats here that we've discovered in the last 50 to 100 years that we didn't even realize existed before. Your point is well taken. And the survival mechanism, you know, people crossed the Atlantic in in terrible boats with the risk of death, but they thought they were going to the promised land. Um, You know, people hiked into the jungle in search of better things and riches. Mars is pretty inhospitable. It sounds like it's the valley of death. Well, let's go back to the promised land for a second. In 1607, a bunch of people landed in Jamestown, and 80% of them were dead two years later. Right. In 1620, 102 people got off the Mayflower and barely made it through the first year. And a a lot of them got sick and a lot of them died. And yet, 20 years later, there were 30,000 people who had come from Europe to what we now call the Americas. That's a good point. That's pretty extraordinary uptake in what was a very hostile environment. It's still going to be a huge challenge. There's no question about that. And yet, all the technology that we need to do that exists today. The rocket exists today. All the devices that would keep us alive on Mars exist today. Man, you're already there. I I am. You're setting up burger shops on Mars already. That's right. You know, in Pompeii, they had a fast food place on the corner in Pompeii. You know, there's (laughs) going to be a fast food place on Mars. (laughs) Packing your bags yet? More in a minute. So Mars is inhospitable. There's no oxygen or obvious water sources. But author Stephen Petranik says that's not a problem. Suppose you're among the first 12 people to arrive on Mars. And you need oxygen. You have a machine called MOXIE that can make oxygen out of the atmosphere. And that's proven, established fact. You need water. The Martian atmosphere is 100% humid every night. There's a device that was invented in 1998 at the University of Washington called WAVAR that is now used commercially as a dehumidifier in large buildings that uses something called zeolite, which is a a mineral that readily absorbs water out of the atmosphere, humidity. So you run that machine in the Martian atmosphere and it produces all the water you want. So the minute you land, It's very easy for you to get everything you need to breathe and everything you need to drink. As for housing, at first, Stephen says we'll live in lava tubes inside the extinct volcanoes. Or in inflatable pop-up tents that are covered in ice or Martian soil. But then we'll build our first homes. And maybe the first neighborhood? 
I think it looks a lot like the kind of stuff we have in Antarctica. It looks a little barracks-like initially. I think it's brick initially. NASA has analyzed what the dust and soil on, on Mars is like. It's a clay called smectite. It's found in lots of parts of Earth. People compare it to kitty litter, but it's a little more dense than that. It absorbs water readily. If you take it and put it in a mold and put it in a microwave oven and mix it with just a little plastic, it makes a hell of a brick. And I think that the initial built environment on Mars will be brick. But it's going to get a lot more sophisticated than that very, very quickly. And there's a tricky factor in living inside on Mars, which is you only have 38% of Earth's gravity on Mars. So when you take a step or you run, you can go much faster, much easier, much farther. People are going to bump into things a lot. So our interior environment there is going to have to be kind of soft and foamy and mushy. And homes on Mars are going to have to serve double duty. Since we won't be able to be outside all that much, we'll have to incorporate the exterior spaces that we have here on Earth. Inside. Parks, waterfalls, nature, all of that under a roof. You know, a good example of this is Central Park in New York City, which is square foot by square foot, one of the most contrived places in the world. And yet, when you're walking through it, it feels like you're kind of in the woods, you know? There you see a squirrel, you see a rabbit, you see a raccoon, you know, it, it feels like the real thing. And we're gonna build that on Mars and we're gonna build it even better. It's gonna be a beautiful, extraordinary environment. Now we have built versions of this already. Take the Minneapolis Skyway in Minnesota, where to survive the long, cold winters, they connected 80 city blocks with interior walkways. There are restaurants, offices, a university, even a football stadium, all climate-controlled and protected from the elements. And Houston, Texas, has subterranean tunnels covering 95 blocks, so you can traverse big swaths of the city without ever going outside. Now imagine that on a massive scale on Mars. I think there will be a large civilization on Mars. Probably by the end of the century, maybe five million people, believe it or not. Wait, uh, wait, 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 wait. Yeah, well, no, say, wait a minute. Let me just take that again. Hold that in for a minute. Okay, five million people by the end of the century. It's unbelievable to hear the optimism. I, and, and I mean it, it with all sincerity. It's infectious to hear someone talking about, you know, the burger shop on Mars and people are going to go despite the risks. Musk has said that he expects to be able to build and to fly to Mars, a thousand starships by the year 2050. He's already setting himself up as essentially an airline to get to Mars. I find it fascinating because I wonder if the goal in and of itself isn't enough. Just the sort of objective of trying to get there might inspire us to do sort of amazing things back here or along the way. Imagine the reaction, for example, that when the first people landed on the moon. What, you know, it, it created a STEM environment that means you have a cell phone in your in your pocket right now. Mm -hmm. When people land on Mars, it'll be a hundred times more powerful than when people landed on the moon. And 
But that isn't the reason that I think we should go. The reason I think we should go is because there are really serious threats to the continuation of humans as a species on Earth. And what are those threats? The big one is is an asteroid. 65 million years ago, an asteroid a little bit more than seven miles across struck the Earth and formed what is now the Caribbean Basin. It created a fireball that lashed out across much of the Earth. It threw so much junk into the atmosphere that nobody saw the sun for at least 100 years and maybe 200 years. And what happened was that not only killed off the dinosaurs, it killed off every mammal that was larger than a rabbit. We know that there is a 100% chance, no ifs, ands, or buts, that we will get hit by another large asteroid. We just don't know when. There goes the optimist. There is no question we're going to get hit by a big asteroid, and it's no question that it will kill every human on Earth and probably 75% of all the other life forms. So if we don't have an outpost like Mars, we can't survive. Eventually, our own sun is going to burn out, and when it does, it's going to expand, and it's going to completely irradiate everything on Earth, and there will be nothing alive on Earth when that happens. That is also going to happen to Mars eventually. So Mars is just a stepping stone. In the same way that we have survived by being a nomadic species for most of our existence on Earth, we must become an interplanetary species. There's a big search going on right now for another planet that we could actually reach within a reasonable time period that is like Earth that we could go to that is not in our solar system. Mars is like going to kindergarten. Mars is where we take our first steps and learn our first abilities about becoming an interplanetary species. If we don't do that, there won't be humans. Stop Mars after the break. Yeah, so my name is Jacob Bleacher. I'm the chief exploration scientist for the Human Exploration Operations Mission Directorate at NASA headquarters. Jacob Bleacher's job at NASA is to figure out how we'll get to places like Mars or the moon and stay there without dying. And he says each unexplored place we visit informs how we explore the next one. The way exploration works is is you go to a place where no one's ever been. You use a lot of effort to get there once. And then you learn about that. And then you have to think about, okay, well, what do I do if I want to stay there a little longer? How do I go back? How do I learn from that first step that I took? So what are we doing to learn how to live in those environments? So the International Space Station... Just recently, we passed 20 continuous years of having astronauts, cosmonauts on board the International Space Station. That's amazing. So that's 20 years of learning in that laboratory. And, and that's, that's a laboratory for us to learn about low Earth orbit, learn about our Earth. But it's also a place where we learn about how to survive and explore in space. And that space station is kind of that key stepping point from which we'll be able to move on to Mars. We go to the moon as kind of an interim step in there. So Jacob says a lot of what we'll need to survive on Mars will be tested on the moon first. 
And he says our first trip to Mars will be a lot like camping. Initially, we have a lander, a, a plan for a transit vehicle and a lander to take the astronauts to the surface. But what's cool about the lander is it's not actually just a stationary habitat, or you might think of it as a house that you build and it stays where it is. It's more like a camper. And so it will actually be a vehicle that can then drive off of the lander itself and the astronauts will live inside that camper and be able to move around. Once we've mastered the mobile camper on Mars, Jacob says we'll set up a permanent base. At first it will be kind of like a small single room apartment kind of thing that we're gonna have up there where you can drive your car or the Orion spacecraft up to it. Now I was curious if we'd bring materials up with us, but anyone who's moved across country knows that's expensive. Imagine shipping two by fours to Mars. And Stephen mentioned building bricks with the Martian soil called regolith. The plan could involve any of that. And in fact, you know, what you're referring to, we call in-situ resource utilization, or using the resources where you are. Expanding out west from the east coast of the United States. You couldn't put it all in the wagon, right? You just couldn't. You had to use the land on your way there. Now, when we go to Mars initially, though, we want to be very certain that we have what we need. So that means we're probably going to spend some time bringing much of that there, either ahead of time before the crew or with the crew, to make sure that those first few people there have everything they need to survive. And Jacob says NASA and commercial companies are testing out habitats here on Earth. We certainly can create situations that help us mimic aspects of what we will be trying to achieve when we go to Mars. Do you want your computer over there? Do you want it over here, away from the kitchen kind of stuff? Just understanding how to maximize the efficiency of your space and your volume. You know, if you've got two or three critical workstations and you designed it so that they overlap and people are bumping into each other, that's not maybe as efficient as it could be. So understanding confinement and how to use your volume and spaces is an important one. You talk about this with such certainty, Jake. Like you're you're not saying if, you're saying when. Are you certain we're going to have people, you know, living on the moon and then eventually going to Mars? Hey man, that's what I signed up for. That's what we're doing. Um, (laughs) We're not investigating whether or not we can do this. We're determining how to do this. Do you think that the future Martian habitat is going to someday inform the American home? Yeah, I absolutely think that that's true. We have the same problems, right? You want to not have your electricity bill be so high. So you got to come up with ways to keep your house insulated. I know I'm constantly battling that over the winter. It's some electricity bills like, oh my goodness, got to do a better job here. And you start looking for how to seal this and, you know, insulate that. And, you know, that's the kind of stuff that we'll trace in. To function in an inhospitable environment, you have to maximize your efficiency. So everything that we learn about habitats, how to build and survive in habitats off the earth, will transition its way into our day-to-day life here. Both Jacob and Stephen are overflowing with optimism. But there's one major difference in their approach to sending people to Mars. Something to be real clear about is that for NASA, as we determine our approaches, We're not sending our astronauts to stay at Mars. These are our friends, they're our colleagues, co-workers here at NASA. 
the plans we have are go to Mars, do your job, and come home, the same as they are for the moon. Now, there may be visions down the road where people go to Mars. You know, you've seen all the science fiction that I have, but that is not what our architecture is. That is not the way we plan to explore Mars. But whether you're like Jacob and you can't wait to see astronauts walk the surface of Mars, or you share Stephen's excitement and you're ready to move there yourself, we wanted to dig a little deeper into what our Martian homes will look like once we've gone beyond the first campsite. So we called in an architect who's been busy thinking about just that. I love kind of designing in these really extreme environments because it really makes me rethink things that we do on Earth as well. Xavier de Castellier is the head of design, technology and innovation at Hassel Studio in London. And he and a team designed a Martian habitat for NASA. Funnily enough, I do use the same tools. We use stuff, for example, uh, solar analysis, where we calculate how much sun captures our building or how much shade I have in my building. We use the same tools on Mars. Instead of calculating how much you know, direct sunlight captures a certain room, I would calculate how much radiation captures that room. The issue now is not heating up the room a bit too much. It's uh, an issue of life and death, really. Building homes that protect us from radiation is key. There are the lava tubes Stephen mentioned, but Xavier is looking for a higher tech approach. That's what the 3D printing comes in. So our idea is is to really 3D print these caves, really shell structures, and not with shovels, but small 3D printers. So a bunch of robots, uh, we call them swarm robotics that we have. And uh, it's not like how you would 3D print you know, an object in your in your house or something like where you would just have a, a small 3D printer, desktop printer. We're going to have small, almost kind of ant-like or termite-like robots working together bit by bit, 3D printing that shell structure, that kind of artificial cave. Xavier says the 3D printers will use the Martian soil or regolith that Stephen and Jacob talked about. So we're just going to take the dust that we find on Mars, shovel it up very simply, and then layer by layer, we actually microwave it together. So just so I understand this, a bunch of tiny little robots, and when you say tiny, how small are we talking? In the palm of your hand, the size of a shopping cart? How small are these things? Shopping carts. Shopping carts. Kind of that size, yeah. So they're running around the surface, they're picking up the regulate, the Mars dust, and they're laying it down sort of in layers and then on top of each other over and over to build a giant above-surface cave, basically, a mound? Yeah, it's like a dome. It's like a big dome, but made out of Martian regolith. Let's call it Martian concrete. You know, it's a big, solid dome. It's quite thick, be about a meter and a half, because it needs to take up all that radiation. So you need to have some mass to protect yourself under. So all these ideas when you see sci-fi visions where you have these beautiful glass domes on Mars or the moon, yeah, that's fantasy. What you really want is something massive. (laughs) No disrespect, Xavier, but you're saying that stuff's fantasy. Yours sounds a little fantasy-like too. (laughs) Well, I... Uh, back to differ on that one. Um, what we've tried to do is not do sci-fi, but do sci-fact. And what we looked at each time is take technologies that we know are being researched at the moment, that we know that could be viable in maybe 
five years, 10 years time and build on those. So nothing that we've actually proposed is sci-fi. This is not just a bunch of architects sitting in their office dreaming it all up. We talk to Martian meteorologists, we talk to engineers, we talk to roboticists, we even talk to space anthropologists. But the people that we talk to a lot were the people who live on those Antarctic bases. And we learned a lot from them because those Antarctic bases are probably the best analogs of what we have compared to living on Mars. If you live on an Antarctic base in the winter, there is no way out. You are disconnected from the rest of the world. You cannot be evacuated. Anything that happens there will have to, any issues they have, any problems they have to resolve in the base with the people they have. Somebody needs an operation, it has to happen in that base at that point in time. Same thing as Mars, you will be disconnected from Earth for quite a few years. Xavier and his team designed a lot of what they learned into their Martian homes. For example, scientists in Antarctica told them that their base looked too much like a lab. And they said, what we did to make it all feel a little bit more homey, we took some of the crates that we have, the plywood crates of packaging, and we took it off and then we put it on the wall to make our living environment just a bit more nicer. So they loved the feeling of a bit of wood. Like, oh, I thought that was interesting too. So in our habitat, our Martian habitat, we use wooden veneers. And we thought like, well, why not? Why does a space station need to look like a space station? It doesn't really need to. So our kind of finishes are actually the finishes you would find in the homes that we have on Earth. Xavier also looked to previous NASA expeditions for inspiration. Skylab, the first space station NASA launched in 1973. And Xavier says the initial designs did not include windows. So astronauts would be in there for weeks and months without a window. And that was because the engineers thought it was too much of a risk, you know, to put that in. Too, too complicated. They actually needed a designer to actually push him. And that was Raymond Levy, the, the famous um, American industrial designer. He was there to really put human central in it. And that's what we tried to do on our habitat as well. Xavier translated the window on the Skylab to a courtyard in a Mars home. What is a courtyard good for? A courtyard is good to get indirect light in and still get a view across in your habitat. So we did the same thing. We created a courtyard so you can see from one pot to the other one across the courtyard without getting direct sunlight in. At the same time, create something of, of a view out as well. Now, there's another obstacle that construction on Mars poses. There are no dumpsters, no way to cart your debris away. Xavier realized that when he had an artist mock up a virtual design of his Martian habitat. And what she did is in the foreground of the render, she put a whole bunch of these robots that just finished their job. And she made like a boneyard of robots that were not useful anymore because they've just built this big structure for the humans to come. And it was a shock to me because I was like, oh, hang on. I have just created the first boneyard, the first rubbish yard on, on Mars. This is terrible, right? The astronauts haven't even arrived yet, and I create a mess. So for me, that was then back to the drawing board, and I kind of redesigned the robotic system to make sure these robots could be used for other purposes. In our design, the furniture 
is 3D printed from waste plastics, from the size experiments and from the, the food packaging. We even went as far to work with a fashion designer to see if we could repurpose the parachutes that we would use to land stuff on Mars, reuse those for the astronauts to make clothes out of. So we start to rethink everything almost, every smallest detail. Can this be reused or reimagined in any other way? It was a matter of a life or death, really, that we really had to recycle and be really careful and tread lightly on this you know, new planet. Building on Mars is complicated, and what we construct there will be influenced by how we build here. Think research stations on Antarctica. But someday, the opposite might be true. Our habitats on Mars could inform how we build our homes here on Earth. From energy efficiency to material selection and sustainability, construction on these two planets are intertwined. And no matter why we go to Mars, for science or to establish the first neighborhood, our homes should reflect us. We want to live in homes in certain environments for a reason. If you would zoom in to one of our renderings, it might look that you're living in a beautiful villa somewhere. And we think there's no reason not to live like that because we do believe having a comfortable environment is really crucial to not just surviving, but thriving. I think that's a really important thing. It's not like living in the International Space Station where you're just part of a big machine. We're not building a machine, we're building a home. Drop us an email at clearstory@thisoldhouse.com to let us know what you think of this episode and if there's anything else you want us to explore. If you liked what you heard, subscribe to Clear Story and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Clear Story was produced for This Old House by Catherine Fenalosa at Rococo Punch. Production support from James Trout, Andrea Suahe, Chris Ermides, and Sarah Chase. And a special thanks to our guests Michelle Thaller, Stephen Petranik, Jacob Bleacher, and Xavier de Kesselier. I'm Kevin O'Connor. More next week. Check out the latest This Old House episodes on your local PBS station and on the Roku channel. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube for more from our home improvement experts. Sign up for our email newsletter at thisoldhouse.com.